good day and welcome to the EPIC broadcast, the official podcast of the Parental Rights Foundation. EPIC, E-P-P-C, stands for Empowering Parents, Protecting Children, because that's what we're all about. Well, greetings to all of our listeners from across the United States. My name is Will Estrada. I'm the president of the Parental Rights Foundation, and it's wonderful to have you on the EPIC broadcast today. My guest today is Jamie Gullen. She's the managing attorney of the Employment Unit and Youth Justice Project at Community Legal Services of Philadelphia. For our listeners, um, the CLS of Philadelphia is not a new organization. We've had Kathleen Creamer on many times, who's also an attorney there at CLS of Philadelphia. But Jamie Gullen's work focuses on increasing access to education and employment opportunities for youth who have juvenile or criminal records through a combination of direct representation, community education, and policy advocacy. Interestingly enough, prior to law school, Jamie taught elementary school in the South Bronx through Teach for America. She's received several awards, including the Penn Law Young Alumni Award, the Sean Peretta Service Award from the Philadelphia Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division, and the Pennsylvania Legal Aid Network's Outstanding Leadership Award as part of a team that advocated for Pennsylvania's Clean Slate Law. And Jamie has published multiple articles and reports on topics including racial justice and education policy, discrimination against young mothers of color with criminal records, and increasing access to higher education for people with juvenile or criminal records. Jamie earned her J.D. cum laude from the University of Pennsylvania Law School in 2012. She received her B.S. from Cornell University in 2007 and an M.S. in teaching from Pace University in 2009. Jamie, thank you for being on our show today. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Jamie, your organization and and you're the lead attorney filed an exciting and I think incredibly important lawsuit against the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania on August 10th. It challenges Pennsylvania's child line registry, which is the state central registry uh, where parents who are accused of abuse or neglect are put on. And it challenged that registry as unconstitutional. Your suit was filed in Commonwealth Court. The uh, suit is AW versus Commonwealth. And I wanted to have you on because this is such an important issue. I've been working on some of these cases myself and model legislation to try and reform central registries, but you are taking the the important step of challenging these registries, at least in Pennsylvania, as unconstitutional. So can you give us some background about this lawsuit, about why your organization filed it, and um, tell us about this lawsuit? Sure. So the Employment Unit at Community Legal Services has for decades represented parents and caregivers who have been um, accused of child abuse or neglect. And in Pennsylvania, what happens is you're automatically listed on the registry, even when the investigation begins, uh, before there's even been a finding. And then once there's a finding that you're what's called indicated, um, which means a social worker has determined there's sufficient evidence of abuse or neglect, that finding is placed on the registry as well. And any type of jobs you're trying to apply for that could involve contact with children, volunteer opportunities, foster care opportunities, a whole range of opportunities are then um, basically foreclosed to you because you've been listed. But what happens is it can take people 
if they're able to navigate a very complex appeal process, it can still take years to be able to get off of the registry and clear their names. So in the meanwhile, people are facing all of these really dire reputational harms from having been listed without ever having a hearing first. So while there are a lot of different issues we see with the registry and we have a lot of different legislative proposals to try to address those issues, this lawsuit is really about the fundamental idea that if you're being accused of something, you have a right to be heard before a neutral party, before you suffer all of these different reputational harms. And, you know, it's hard to think of what could cause more reputational harm to somebody than being labeled a child abuser. Um, you know, you mentioned we do a lot of work at CLS around criminal records issues as well. Um, and that's certainly stigmatizing. But in our practice, we see that um, for folks who have been accused of child abuse or neglect, they really face the harshest stigma of all. And it's nearly impossible to try to even get them back to work um, while we're trying to clear up um, their situation and clear their names. Um, and then as a few of the petitions, petitioners in our lawsuit stories show too, because the appeals process is just so confusing, so many people aren't able to navigate it at all. Um, and in Pennsylvania, if you miss a short 90 day window, it used to be 45 days, now it's 90 days. If you miss that window and you can't navigate the process, you're stuck on the registry for life, which is really different than a lot of other states that have tiers based on the type of allegation. In Pennsylvania, it doesn't matter if you were accused of missing a doctor appointment or of sexually abusing a child. Um, if you miss that window to appeal, you're not able to appeal in that timeline, you're on the registry for life. So a few of our petitioners have been trying for decades to clear their name and to get a hearing based on like accidental injuries that happened to their child 15 years ago and they still can't work in healthcare or child care fields and haven't been able to this day to be able to get that hearing to have an opportunity to challenge these allegations so those types of fundamental flaws in this process is really what we're trying to change with this lawsuit. Jamie, I was really struck as I was reading the complaint that you and your organization filed in Commonwealth Court um, for one of the uh, one of the petitioners. Uh, the petitioner is a child care worker, and uh, uh, there had been an allegation of a bruise on a child at this at this child care facility. And the doctor said, uh, as I was reading the uh, the allegations, the doctor said, "Well, this must have happened a week ago." And so all it, it looks like it was the your petitioner, and then six others were just put on this central registry in in Pennsylvania as as child abusers, even though there was absolutely no evidence. Number one, that the harm happened at the child facility, child care facility, or that any of these workers were the people who who did it. And and you know when you look think of a bruise, kids are active, they're running around. That could be a host of reasons. It doesn't necessarily have to be that there was any foul play involved. Can you talk a little bit about about just how broad and sweeping this is, and you know specifically this petitioner, but maybe some of the others that you're representing of how this could impact their life just in a terrible way um, with no due process that happened. Absolutely. Um, you know, in Pennsylvania, we're unfortunately the home of San the Sandusky scandal, of course. And um, in 2014, our state legislature passed a slew of, I think it was nearly uh, 40 bills to our child protective services law trying to 
you know, understandably address the situation and try to um, strengthen child abuse laws at that time. Unfortunately, of all of those amendments that were made, very few would have actually addressed the situation that occurred at Penn State. But what those amendments did do is greatly water down the definitions of child abuse and neglect in our statutes in Pennsylvania, as well as greatly expand the types of employers who can request child line clearances. So what we've seen over the past um, you know, seven years or so since those laws went into effect is just an even um, wider net that the registry is casting on folks. Um, so we're seeing folks who you know, are indicated because a child could have possibly been injured based on something that happened, but actually the child was totally fine. Nothing even happened. <laughs> uh, we see cases um, you know, where it's just clearly an accident um, where, uh, you know, a parent walks away for a minute, um, you know, taking care of busy things parents have to do and a child gets an injury. That's our, our petitioner PL, her son um, accidentally touched a curling iron while she was doing hair, um, you know. So those are the types of incidents we see more and more. In our office, it's very rare for us to get cases that are actually child sexual abuse allegations. Um, it's much more of these sort of accidental injuries, um, you know, very brief lapses in parental supervision, which as a parent of two kids myself, I know it's like a very common and normal thing that happens um, in a, a day in the life of a parent. Um, so, or, you know, um, to your point about uh, the AW petitioner and her case, you know, something where there's, you know, some kind of medical issue that's being observed, but there's no real understanding or evidence about what caused it. And so since we don't know what caused it, we're just going to, you know, assume it must have been abuse and indicate any of the parents or caregivers who were involved in the child's care during the time the injury would have occurred. So those are really the types of cases we're seeing now. Um, and then in terms of just the huge impact that has on people's lives, um, it used to be that, you know, this really was an issue that affected daycare workers and teachers, which, you know, makes some sense, <laughs> you know, if you're working in a, in a daycare, in a school, and you're all day long taking care of children, you know, I, I can at least understand, even though, you know, I would still have a lot of problems with how this register is operated, I can at least understand the connection there, right? But what's happened um, in the past seven years or so is that, um, any employer that can say that a position might have direct contact with children can now request a clearance. So what we're seeing now is pretty much the entire healthcare sector in Pennsylvania is requiring childline clearances. So we're seeing home health aides whose clients are senior citizens need to get childline clearances. We're seeing janitors who work in a hospital and might run into a child in the hallway required to get clearances. We're seeing cafeteria workers who are never you know, in a position to be alone caring for a child being required to get clearances. Um, so you know, in this whole range of jobs that are really the um, fastest growing sectors in the Pennsylvania economy where a lot of our clients who are you know, low income women of color are working, um, they're basically excluded from these giant fields. Um, and you know, for some of our clients, a couple of our petitioners, for example, you know, they've gone to school, they've trained, they've built a whole career, career to work in the healthcare sector, for example. And because of one of these allegations happening, they're just totally stopped in their tracks. So, uh, for example, one of our, our petitioners, um, MA, was in nursing school when her child um, had some, what the doctors initially thought was some bruising on her skin. It turned out later it was eczema. 
but uh, she was actually out of town when the child was brought to the hospital. And when the social worker um, investigated and spoke to her boyfriend who was caring for the child, he said, I don't know, you know why these marks are here. You know, the only thing I can think of is we like to horseplay sometimes. And based just on that alone, they indicated not just the boyfriend, but my cl our client who wasn't even there at the time because she shouldn't have left her child alone with somebody who horseplayed with her kid. And then later, it turns out none of this was even bruising to begin with. It was a rash. Um, and there's evidence in the investigative file of that. And yet our client is still on the registry. It's been several years. Uh, she had to drop out of her nursing program. And if she's not, if she doesn't get a, a decision from her case by this fall, she won't be able to go back ever. So you see the ways in which the system is really derailing people's entire careers and life trajectories in a way that like if they had just been given an opportunity to be heard and if the evidence had had to actually been put forth on the front end, this harm never would have happened. Jamie, you mentioned uh, briefly how this far more often impacts low-income people, people of color, uh, and, and that tracks with what our organization has found, too, that many of even CPS investigations and then findings are indicated on central registries are often people who are low-income, minorities, people of color. Is that what you're seeing as well in, in Pennsylvania? It's absolutely what we see in our practice at CLS. The vast, vast, vast majority of the clients we represent are low-wage women of color, black and brown women. Um, it's been difficult to get statewide a statewide glance at this issue. Um, the State Department of Human Services publishes a report every year that includes a huge swath of data related to the child abuse registry and child abuse reporting in Pennsylvania. And until this year, there was absolutely no demographic data released as part of that report. And this year they began trying to do some of that, but the information released was basically indecipherable. So we're still really working on trying to get a, a, a data-based statewide picture of um, what racial bias may be embedded in, in people being called into Childline to begin with. And then in terms of which reports are substantiated, who can get through the appeals process, you know, there's a whole range of, of touch points where um, we'd really like to know what the data says. So that's an ongoing effort in our office to try to get at that, as well as to look at, you know, here in Philadelphia, what that looks like. Um, but I'll just say for, for now, from our practice, we can say that, um, you know, 80, 90% of the clients we represent are black and brown parents in Philadelphia who are, you know, low income. Um, and, you know, it's both the harm on the front end, you know, there's plenty of social science research out there in general about how the child welfare system operates and the racial bias embedded in that and who gets called in, you know, who, when you take your kid to a doctor who's more likely to get, um, you know, whose injuries are going to be more likely to be viewed with suspicion and, and will lead to a call to the child welfare agency. So, you know, we know that there's a lot of data nationally and overall showing the racial biases um, that are embedded in the system. So we know that happening on the front end, but the other piece of it is kind of what I was saying before on the back end, that the types of jobs that are most affected by the registry are really ones um, that are disproportionately um, staffed by low-wage women of color. So you have the racial bias on the front end, and then you have the exclusions that are disproportionately impacting um, women of color on the back end. And so I think it's both of those things together that um, lead to, you know, why we see in our practice, the, the vast majority of clients that we're working with um, are low-income women of color. 
Well, Jamie, I'm, I'm very glad you and CLS Philadelphia are there fighting for these individuals and these, these parents and these workers in Pennsylvania. You said something that I just wanted to clarify because it was amazing to me. You said that when, some, when an investigation begins in Pennsylvania, uh, a parent or caregiver is automatically placed on the child line registry. Is that really the case in Pennsylvania before there's even been a conclusion of the investigation? Yes, that is correct. Um, if somebody were to say, go try to get a job that required a clearance while the investigating investigation was pending, the clearance would say there is a pending investigation. So it wouldn't say, you know, you've been indicated yet, but there would be um, an indication given to the employer or to, you know, the volunteering opportunity um, that would suggest that there's an open case investigating you. And that's still going to hurt them if an employer, I mean, has someone who's not getting exactly. dinged on the registry versus someone who there's a pending investigation, you know, they're going to, that's going to be easy way for them to say, oh, I don't want to take this, even if the person is unjustly on that list or there, there's going to be no evidence of abuse and neglect. Well, that's, and you know, it's interesting. This is not just a Pennsylvania issue. I recently represented a family who had a finding of medical neglect against them in Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, you have 15 days from when you get that, the postmark on that letter saying that you've been found to have, uh, you know, neglected your child. You have 15 days to file an appeal. And then only 30 days after you get the response back that your appeal has been accepted to provide evidence, letters from doctors, that sort of thing. And in Oklahoma, there's there's not even a, an opportunity for an in-person hearing. It's just this, this paperwork thing. You have no idea who's reviewing it. In Arizona, Pacific Legal uh, Foundation and Goldwater Institute have recently filed a lawsuit against the state of Arizona over their central registry and, and the similar issues of where there's no due process for, for innocent parents and caregivers to appeal their name. Our organization has worked with the American Legislative Exchange Council to try and draft model legislation nationwide for states to introduce to put in these due process protections, because it is, there's a there's a constitutional component here of of your right uh, to uh, to have notice and hearing before you're put on a registry. Correct? Absolutely. Our, the main thrust of this lawsuit is a due process claim, and we brought this specific case under the Pennsylvania Constitution for a number of reasons, including that we not only have a due process right that everybody has through the federal constitution, but here in Pennsylvania, we also have a more rare constitutional provision that includes the right to reputation, um, which is very, and a very interesting <laughs> uh, provision that really gives an extra layer of protection in issues like this, where somebody's reputational harm is really being damaged without sufficient or rational process beforehand. So that's the reason we brought it under the state constitution, but the due process analysis really would apply even under the federal constitution. There's very well-established legal principles that before you deprive somebody of a, a property or liberty interest that they're supposed to be given due process before a neutral party. So what we've even heard a little bit in this case already is, well, there is a requirement now that a solicitor, a lawyer who represents the Department of Human Services, the county agency, has to sign off on the indicated report finding. But that agent, that lawyer represents the agency that made that determination. So in no way is that some kind of neutral 
party reviewing that, right? And then also there's still no opportunity to be heard. There's an opportunity for the parent or caregiver to be presenting evidence. So it's really interesting to see what some folks are arguing are some of the like checks and balances in place that uh, may give an illusion of due process, but truly don't meet what's required under the federal or state constitutions in terms of a meaningful opportunity to be heard before a neutral arbiter. Uh, Jamie, I grew up in Pennsylvania, and I still have family members who live in Pennsylvania. So I'm 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 very glad your organization has filed this lawsuit. The lawsuit was filed on August 10th. So what's the next step? Um, what do you think is going to happen next? Right now, we're waiting for a response from the state. Um, we anticipate, you know, they'll have objections to our complaint. Um, but what we're really hoping this is going to go is that we'll be able to file in our Commonwealth what's called a motion for summary relief, um, which is sort of like a summary judgment motion that will basically, <clears throat> basically argue that as a matter of law, we should win this case as a constitutional matter of law. Um, we don't think there's really a need for a lot of fact-finding or discovery or um, you know, a trial in this matter. We think that if you just read the statute, if you just read the Child Protective Services law, it is inherently unconstitutional as a matter of law. There's no amount of you know, facts or discovery that can change that it's written into the law. Um, so that's, that's our legal position and that's how we plan to approach the case going forward. Of course, you never know <laughs> what could happen from there, but that's our plan. So we're currently working on, on that as our next step. And we're also working with several different experts from different parts of the country um, to help kind of bolster uh, the arguments that we're going to make as part of that motion. So that's that's where we are now. Well, excellent. Uh, we are we are rooting for you and uh, and wish you all the success in this. And we'd like to have you on when there's been um, updates as well in this case. So uh, standing invitation, Jamie, to come on and, and keep our nationwide listeners apprised of how your lawsuit is going against the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Any final thoughts? Absolutely. Oh, no, thank you. This has been great. Thanks for having me on. Well, my guest today has been Jamie Gullen with um, CLS Philadelphia on her lawsuit and their organization's lawsuit against the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania over the uh, child line registry and the unconstitutional um, impact that it has on parents and caregivers in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Jamie, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. You have been listening to the Epic Broadcast, the official podcast of the Parental Rights Foundation. You can find this and all our episodes at parentalrightsfoundation.org slash podcast or on iTunes or Spotify. If you enjoyed this episode, please share our podcast with your friends. Use the Epic hashtag with two Ps on social media or leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others join our community. The Parental Rights Foundation is a donor-supported 501c3 dedicated to protecting children by empowering parents. To support our work, including this podcast, make a gift today at parentalrightsfoundation.org. Thank you for listening.